0: Hello, I'm Jay Ackerman, CEO of Revelier, a software company committed to providing health plans with innovative technologies to maximize their return from quality, risk adjustment, and compliance initiatives. We're back again with yet another installment of the Value-Based Healthcare Podcast, where we engage with thought leaders and visionaries working across the healthcare ecosystem. Through our podcast, we aim to widen the visibility and voice of people working to change how healthcare is provided and the impact it has on all those who participate in the care delivery chain. Let's get started. Okay, Dr. Nash, are you ready to roll?
1: I am ready to rock and roll.
0: Awesome. Let's begin with a few questions regarding your career journey. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and and your journey through healthcare?
1: Sure. Happy to. So I'm a walking, talking dinosaur, at least what (laughs) my millennial children tell me. Look, listen, I'm a primary care general internist, but I've been in academic medicine my entire career. I did a college, med school, residency and then immediately after residency I was lucky enough to be a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation clinical scholar at Penn Med School. Along with that came a academic complete scholarship to Wharton Business School where I majored in health administration. So, as soon as I was done with uh, Wharton, I joined the University of Pennsylvania Medical School faculty, where I stayed for almost four more years. Then, I got recruited to Jefferson University, also in Philadelphia, Penn's arch rival, uh, about 20 blocks east of the Penn campus. And I've been on the Jefferson campus since 1990, so 30 years on the Jefferson faculty. And very quickly in that time period, I've had three jobs, that's it, three jobs in 30 years. I came here to, uh, recruited to build a staff office called the Office of Health Policy. I was the only doctor in 1990 on the entire medical staff who also had a business degree. And then in 2003, 13 years later... We created a medical school-based department of health policy, which doesn't sound like a big deal to our listeners, but if you're inside a medical school, it was a huge deal. And then finally, in 2008, the university voted to build a brand new school, and I got named as the founding dean, and it evolved into the nation's first College of Population Health. And I was the founding dean for 11 years and just stepped down in July of this past summer. So my official title now, which is kind of corny, is the Founding Dean Emeritus, which means I'm back on the faculty doing my own thing without the day-to-day leadership challenges. So that's my quick story. It's uh, really pretty remarkable to be in one place for 30 years. That's why I said I'm a walking, talking dinosaur.
0: Yeah, well, let me pose a few additional questions to the walking, talking dinosaur. So the uh, move from Penn over to Jefferson that had to be a big decision for you. And, and what was it that prompted you to make that kind of transition?
1: Boy, that is a really great question. Very insightful. And I could feel my butterflies in my stomach as though it were 30 years ago. <laughs> so I think two things. The leadership at Jefferson back in 1990 included a very famous medical school dean, Joseph Ganella, who's still alive in his mid-80s who was the longest-serving dean of any medical school in America at that point in time. So to be asked by a guy who had been around a long time to be recruited personally by him and to be told that I'd have a chance to build something from scratch, namely this Office of Health Policy, that was pretty alluring. And, you know, I was young enough and dumb enough to not realize all the risks. (laughs) So it was uh, kind of a heady thing to be asked to leave Penn and take on this brand new responsibility. So that was certainly part of it was the leadership. And the other part was, frankly, uh, Penn was an amazing place, still is, lots of really smart people. And I figured, uh, you know, maybe I could be a little bit of a bigger fish in a little smaller pond. And that was part of my thinking too, quite frankly. Two good reasons.
0: Yeah, that's great. And that challenge to build the Office of Health Policy What was the one thing that surprised you the most and setting off
1: to build it? Well, again, great question. I think I was pretty naive given it was uh, 30 years ago. So I was uh, 34 years old and I figured, how hard could this be? (laughs) And I'll just come and show them, you know, how compelling and how smart I am. And uh, for the first year, nobody paid any damn attention. So that was pretty surprising I guess I didn't realize how set in their ways many medical school faculty members were. And here's this young whippersnapper, and I had some different thoughts and ideas about what we might be involved in and how we might approach it. For example, back in those days, any doctor could order any drug they want for any patient. Nobody cared what it cost or whether it was even the right drug. I mean, it was kind of, if you would, in retrospect, a little bit like the Wild West. And I guess I didn't anticipate just how autonomous most of the faculty really were. It took some getting used to.
0: As a leader building Revelier, I rely heavily on a mentor and a coach outside the company to kind of help me with some things that seem obvious and that I struggle with or trying to gain alignment on topics internally. Did you have anybody that served in that role as a mentor or coach helping you kind of manage those dynamics and think a little Gosh, bit I differently sure, about that?
1: I sure did, and I'm so lucky in retrospect. So, quick story, and this, you couldn't make this up if you tried. So let's go back to um, 1973, Jay, and I'm a senior in high school, in a big public high school on the south shore of Long Island, New York. And I'm applying to college, and I'm interested in both business and medicine. That was about all I, you know, that was my level of detail. And there was this New York Times story about a pretty amazing doctor, educational entrepreneur at Penn Med School. His name was Samuel P. Martin III. So I read this piece and he was talking about, in 1973, training physician leaders for the future. And I thought, wow, this is exactly like what I'm interested in. So my late father, God bless him, he said, well, why don't you write Dr. Martin a letter? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> uh, I said, Wow, well, ah, come on, that's dumb. So, of course, I took out my Smith Corona typewriter because, you know, dinosaurs, 1973, no Internet, obviously. I wrote him a letter and I said, hey, I'm this uh, young person and you're doing some interesting stuff. I'd really like, you know, some advice. That son of a gun called me at my home on Long Island and said any 18-year-old who writes me a letter like that, I got to meet you, get on a train, and get to Philadelphia. Holy mackerel. So from 1973 until he died in 1994, Sam Martin was that mentor. So in the end of his life, which overlapped with my coming to Jefferson, he was crucially important in helping me to you know, overcome these uh, unanticipated surprises and to navigate the treacherous early in my career faculty waters. So that's the somewhat long-winded answer to did I have a mentor? The answer is definitely yes. I was really lucky to have Sam for almost 20 years.
0: Wow. Well, Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing that story. So maybe the last question on kind of the current role. So making the transition out of being head of the school to now being full-time back in the faculty role. What prompted that and what are you hoping to accomplish?
1: Great. So I've always been a strong believer that leaders need to train the leaders of tomorrow. That's been really what I've been about at Jefferson almost for the three decades I've been here. And then I realized two years ago that, you know, the day-to-day wasn't that much fun anymore. I found that I was... um, not patient with people, that I really wasn't focused on the strategic goals. Essentially, the day-to-day people issues that all leaders face, and especially ones who are building something from scratch, it started just to become kind of a burden instead of something that I found energizing. That was one issue. Second issue was I felt that turning 64 I should really probably step out of the way and let younger people get into it. In our culture and academic medicine, 64 is not old. But as our listeners probably know, you know, mandatory retirement for a Deloitte partner at 62, no questions asked. So I thought, time to step aside and practice what I preach, which is let young people, after you support them, let them have the opportunity. So I think it was a question of some uh, modest burnout wanting to give young people a chance. And then finally, I wanted to return to my own work. I think I have probably one more book left in me, and I'm very interested in uh, governance as it relates to the private sector and health care and helping to educate folks at the governance level about population health. So I thought now would be a good time for me to take advantage of this part of my career. My wife calls it... uh, David Nash 2.0. It just took me 30 years to get to
0: 2.0. All right. Well, let's go talk to David Nash 2.0. Dr. Nash, let's talk about what industry trends you are watching and most closely in healthcare.
1: Great. So there's a couple of things I think that we're paying rapt attention to. Let's start with the biggest, which is population health. So what the heck is that? So we believe that tenets, the tools of population health, going upstream to shut the faucet rather than constantly mopping up the floor, that the tools of understanding the social determinants, focusing on the chronically ill, focusing on care coordination, getting good data to feedback to doctors, nurses, pharmacists about their own performance, making sense out of all the quality measures that are out there. This is the blocking and tackling that we believe is gonna help us on the road from volume to value. In fact, we have a four-word saying that we copyrighted about a year and a half ago that I am responsible for. We call it no outcome, no income. That's pretty pithy, don't you think? No outcome, no income. For sure. And so that's a huge trend that we're following, probably the biggest. Second trend is the digital revolution. And especially as it relates to connectivity with patients. Let me give you some concrete examples. Jefferson Health System just finished our 100,000th video visit with patients, number 100,000 in three years. They're pretty incredible. So we're studying that. I have colleagues who are amazing leaders in the whole telemedicine sphere. So, the second trend after Pop Health is really consumer connectivity. third big trend that I know many of our listeners care a lot about is uh, artificial intelligence. But we use the term population health intelligence, which is our umbrella term for AI, augmented intelligence, predictive analytics. And I'm very interested as to where we're going with pop health intelligence and the tools that we might use to also improve performance. So those are the some of the key trends we're definitely tracking pop health pop health intelligence and consumer engagement
0: staying with social determinants of health do you think the health plans predominantly see it as a philanthropic effort or a financial you know financial driver behind it
1: well boy that's the $64 thousand dollar question you know at the moment it's a tough call I think certainly the For-profit managed care industries, the big boys, United, Anthem, Cigna, Humana,
0: these organizations
1: are very savvy and they know that tackling some of the social determinants will have a great return on investment down the road. It's the tough current balance between, you know, demands of Wall Street, shareholder return But they also know that by going upstream and shutting off that faucet by tackling nutrition, exercise, obesity, opioid abuse, poverty, housing, that longer term, there will be a great return on those investments. In the not-for-profit payer world, mostly the Blues plans, I think they're poking their nose under the tent here. They're poking their toes under the tent of social determinants. A good example would be the Blues Investing in some social determinant companies. Solaris is the one that comes to mind. So I think we're we're starting to see that Wall Street understands the role of social determinants and by investing in these new companies and in the social determinants directly, we are going to achieve a pretty good return on investment.
0: What do you see as the, um, you know, if we look out a couple of years, The biggest driver to turning it into something that is a a must have and it's driven by strong financial incentives?
1: Great. So I think the biggest driver, uh, that's an excellent question. The biggest driver, in my opinion, would be bundled payments. And you could call it capitation, global fee. Look at the great state of Maryland. I mean, Maryland is unheralded, but it's delivering high quality, good outcomes. At a competitive price. I mean, I would call that value, and they're doing it uniquely under a statewide budget, a ceiling. So, at the local level, more nationally speaking, I think, uh, in the legislative level, nationally speaking, I think bundled payment is the way to go because that makes primary care doctors and specialists look in the mirror, makes them work together. You know, we know that if you align the economic incentives, you will change doctor behavior. We know this and there's solid research to support it. So I think if I had to pick one tool that really promotes looking at the social determinants and working together and doing it right, I would say it's capitation would be the old term and bundled payment would be the newer term.
0: That's great. What do you see as the greatest barriers or challenges that affect patient improvement today.
1: Wow! Yeah, that's gigantic. So I think there's two major things that, again, you know, I, I've spent literally 30 years struggling with. So uh, one is I could describe it in three words for you: unexplained clinical variation. One more time: unexplained clinical variation. So what the heck is that? That is basically doctors do what we train them to do. I went to Rochester for medical school. I know I have the right answer, I mean, without being facetious, of course, but believe me, that is the extant attitude. I'm pretty good at what I do, and in the absence of closure of the feedback loop, I'm going to keep doing it my way. And guess what? My way is different from your way, which is different from your way, and we got 150 medical schools, and we almost have 150 ways of doing the same damn thing. So the number one challenge is unexplained clinical variation. Second big challenge is we have a lot of measures out there, as I'm sure you would agree, Jay, lots of measures. About a third of them make no sense clinically. And why are we collecting data on certain things that just make no sense and aren't changeable, and not only aren't changeable, aren't going to improve outcomes? So that's all part of the measurement mania that we have to get our arms around. So to summarize, I think unexplained clinical variation and poor measures, measurement mania, really contributing a lot to the challenges that we're facing.
0: That's so great. Well, how about taking one, one of those, either the unexplained clinical variation or the measures, and what do you think we should do to, to address these barriers and challenges?
1: Well, let's take unexplained variation because, you know, this is a, a rebel sweet spot. I think if you give doctors, nurses, pharmacists, good information in a non-punitive way in a timely way, delivered by a peer about their own performance, number one. Good closure of the feedback loop about their own performance. And number two, you give them the tools to learn how to improve performance. If you do those two things, you better get out of the way because these clinicians will stampede to improve. No doctor I know wants to be a B-plus student, not a one. They all want to be at least A-minus, preferably A+. So reducing unexplained clinical variation means I need a registry function. I need to know how I'm doing relative to my peer group. And then I need to not only understand those so-called gaps in care, then I have to be taught how I close those gaps, and I need resources as well to help me close those gaps.
0: That's a great perspective on that. Can we talk about the public and what recommendations would you have for the public regarding their empowerment and ownership of their own health and well-being?
1: Outstanding. Well, here's the sad reality. Let's put some numbers on your great question. So we know from multiple research sites it's a pretty depressing, but if I asked our listeners, what percentage of adults taking all comers in the country do the following five things? Don't smoke, wear a seatbelt eat their fruits and vegetables, are at uh, close to an appropriate body mass index. What percentage of adults do all these things and exercise regularly? The answer is 3%. I mean, that's staggering. So 3% of adults nationwide do all five of the recommended things. Don't smoke, wear a seatbelt, exercise, watch their fruits and vegetables, and are at close to an appropriate body mass index. That is staggering. So I'm all about, well, how do we engage with the other 97%? And the answer to that is with whatever it takes. So for millennials, it's going to be, you know, Instagram and text messaging. For baby boomers, it's going to be telemedicine. For the elderly, we're going to have to go to where they live and bring them to a senior center. I mean, it's all about patient connectivity. And if we could enhance it with technology, you know, great, Fitbit and all the rest. If we can't enhance it with technology, then we still have an economic incentive to get the elderly to the senior center so they won't be lonely, they won't be depressed, they won't get dementia, and they won't cost the system a fortune. So to answer your great question, to me it's all about finding ways to engage with patients of all sizes and shapes across the age spectrum. And preferably with folks who are still healthy, because the real savings, as we know, is by keeping the well well, and by tackling the five percent. That's all it is who drive you know eighty plus percent of the total cost.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Meet them where they are, right? So, you bet, each, as yeah. necessary, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we talked a little bit about um, individual members and our well-being. Let's talk about healthcare executives what advice might you have for healthcare execs? So maybe we could take it as kind of two parts. So health plan execs, and then maybe kind of health system executives. Great.
1: So payers first, providers second, you good with that? Yeah, perfect. Great. So, wow, for payers, I'd actually probably tell them both the same things. It's a little corny answer, but it's really heartfelt. Hey, guys and gals, let's find a way to work together. About 10 months ago I first heard the corny term a payvider. I don't know if our listeners are up on this, the payvider, which is obviously a payer and provider partnership. So I am all about moving forward 2020 and beyond payer provider partnerships because look, payers don't actually necessarily take care of anybody and providers don't really understand generally speaking the measures and the cost imperative so i think you're going to see in the marketplace heretofore never experienced payer provider partnerships so i would say to each group find a way to get a partner and partner up and then learn from the partnership experience i think we both have a lot to learn from each other speaking as i do from two worlds 30 years inside the belly of the beast on the provider side and 10 years as a board member of the Humana Corporation.
0: That's fantastic. So let's go up one notch and let's talk about CMS. So if you could push for one change from CMS over the next couple of years, what would that be?
1: Wow, Uh, roll out more bundled payment experiments across both inpatient and ambulatory diagnoses. And hurry up. We don't need five years of research on each of these cut it in half. So more and faster.
0: More and faster. Tough call for CMS. them, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, but we can certainly push them, right?
1: You bet. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would bet to my previous answer, some big pair provider partners could really push this and make it happen.
0: Well, Dr. Nash, I knew we'd have a lot to talk about with, you know, such an interesting career that you've had. You certainly haven't disappointed. Let's kind of start to bring this to a close, and we'll we'll bring it to a, a wrap with our rapid fire round. So, kind of five quick questions, no right or wrong, just top of mind for you. So, I know you're a runner. So, what was your favorite runner race that you've completed?
1: Oh boy, yeah, with a lot of pain years ago. The yeah, in California, the so-called Beta Breakers Run. That was one, and in Portland, Oregon, a half marathon that practically crippled me when I was done.
0: All right. It's a timely one with the New York Marathon just having wrapped up.
1: Yes, I don't think I could go the full 26 miles. Half a marathon was pretty damn good. Yeah.
0: What was the last great book that you've read?
1: Well, boy, among my favorite books are Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. In fact, I like a lot of her stuff. Those are some of my favorite books ever. More recently, I really like the book Bear Town and it's been a bestseller, has a Scandinavian author. It's about this sort of isolated rural town, fiction town, where opposing ice hockey teams and what that does to the culture and competition, really great fiction. Yeah. But my all-time favorite is Atlas Shrugged.
0: All right, well, as a former hockey player, I'm gonna to have to pick that one up.
1: But you gotta read Bear Town, definitely. A yeah. great, great book.
0: All right, a little deeper here. If you could redo one decision in your life, what would it be and
1: why? Wow, one decision.
0: <laughs> I
1: think if I had a uh, more athletic prowess, it would have been great to be on some teams in high school and college. I was too busy studying.
0: And then uh, we're getting a little lighter. How about a uh, favorite app on your mobile device? Oh, well,
1: that's easy now. It's called Tiny Beans, and it's so I could have a private... Chat and private photos of my fifteen week old grandson, so tiny beans that 's what the millennials are using when they don't want to have their infants out on social media
0: ah, all right hadn't heard of that one great okay uh, this would be an easy one for you as uh, an avid reader and um, you know someone from the world of academia. How about your favorite quote?
1: Wow, my favorite quote if you want to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, you got to start with a silk cow, (laughs) (laughs) which basically means surround yourself with great talent. That's the only way to succeed. And I've been incredibly lucky to be able to do that.
0: Well, that's a, a perfect place to wrap on. You know, Reveliers, we're working to build this company. We're working very hard to bring in great talent and You bring in one great new hire, that brings in your next great hire, right? Talent wants to to work with other great talent. Always. Well, Dr. Nash, thanks again for your time and your openness. Uh, You've been a great guest. had a lot to share.
1: Thanks very much. Really enjoyed
0: the opportunity. Same here. Over and out. Thank you for joining us today. Listen to more episodes at com or find us through your favorite podcast platform. For episode updates, follow Revelier on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook.